Good morning once again, NCF, those of you who are watching online and those of you who are with us in person. Let's bow our heads now asking for the Lord to bless our time together. Let's pray. And Father, now as we have heard your word being publicly read, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would now be present among us and that you would let the preaching of the word be set ablaze into our hearts, enriching our minds and fortifying our soul that we would live life of faithful obedience driven by our loving fear of you. God, we know that in the midst of so much turmoil, you reign. And in the seasons of peace, you continue to rule. And Father, now as we are in this transition as a nation, as we continue to endure as a world society, we pray that as your church everywhere across this globe are gathered to worship you, that you would speak, that you would empower, and that you would lift up the countenance of your people so that we could truly be a living testimony to a world that needs to see our risen king. Father, we pray that now you would bless this message in spite of the one who brings it, for we ask all these things in Jesus' name and all God's people together said, amen and amen. So uh, a few years ago, Sarah and the kids and I were grocery shopping one day at an Asian market somewhere in Flushing. And as we proceeded to leave the store, a lady out of nowhere just approached us. And she started telling us about the blood of Jesus and how his love can set us free from sin. And if we believe, we would have eternal life. Yeah. This woman was evangelizing to us. And given that I'm a fellow co-worker of the kingdom, I decided to indulge her, and I listened to her entire speech that she no doubt rehearsed, gladly accepted the beautiful pen, the little booklet, and the CD that were both written and spoken in Korean, which was no benefit to me. And then I proceeded to move forward to my car with my family, which she was more than willing to let me do, because right behind me was her next victim. I mean, her next person to evangelize too. And as I was headed towards the car, I could overhear the conversation she was having with this gentleman, and she basically was saying the same thing, telling this man about Jesus and so forth, when without warning, he yells at the top of his lungs these words to this woman, I can't go to your church, okay? I don't have any money. Please leave me alone. I have no money, so I can't go to your church. Please, I don't have any money. You don't want me at your church because I have no money, all right? Now, as terrible as that was for this lady, it got worse because apparently there was another gentleman watching this transpire and he decided to chime in where he started screaming at the top of his lungs, churches only want your money. That's the only reason why they want you going to their church because they, all they care about is just taking your money. Meanwhile, Sarah and I are calmly putting our groceries in the trunk of our van. We're buckling in our little ones into their car seats and we proceed to go home as if nothing is happening. Why? Because we're all well too familiar of the diatribe that we were hearing going on in that incident. Okay? As workers of the kingdom, my wife and I, we're very well familiar of the chronic suspicion that people have when it comes to the relationship between church and money. A justifiable suspicion that I may add because we too know the stories of greed, of corruption, of churches doing shady financial practices to where churches that had prominence, preachers who had respect, end up having none of that at all. You know, it's for this reason that when I was in seminary, my professor who taught me preaching, my homiletics professor, once said this to us, the students. He said, gentlemen, 
when you begin your pulpit ministry, make sure that you never talk about three things. First, never talk about politics. Second, never talk about racism. And third, and this is really important, never, no never, talk about tithing, offering, giving to the Lord. Okay? And I'm willing to bet that my professor didn't say that to just my class. I'm sure he said it to every class that came through his door. And not just that professor, I'm sure homiletic professors everywhere across the country have told their students the very same thing, resulting in many pulpits being eerily silent on this very topic of giving our offerings to the Lord in the context of worship. And of course, some of these pastors might justify their silence by saying, I'm trying to maintain security here, job security. Well, that may be so. But by being silent, these pastors are also causing many people in the church to be ignorant or maybe worse, error-filled when it comes to how we should worship God in the context of offering, thereby minimizing and truncating the wholeness of worship that God desires from us. And so as your pastor, I want to make sure that when you give your worship, you can give it in the full. And so as we continue our sermon series on the way we worship, that is what we're going to be doing today by talking about the very thing I was told not to. I want to talk about what it means of giving our offerings to God in the context of worship. And to do so, we're going to take a look at this passage here in Deuteronomy chapter 8. And as we do, we're going to see three things in terms of what God wants us to offer to him in the context of worship. So three things are what God wants us to offer to him, how God wants us to offer to him, and why God wants us to offer to him. What God wants, how God wants, and why God wants us to offer to him. Okay, so let's jump right in with the first point, what God wants us to offer to him. Now, it might seem like a weird point, to start off the sermon by saying what God wants us to offer to him. Uh, Pastor, isn't it obvious what God wants us to offer to him? He wants our money. He wants our moolah. He wants our wealth. He wants our wages. He wants our cash. He wants our capital. Okay, sure, I'll grant. When you read this passage, you do come across many references to money or one of its many manifestations. For example, you see a reference to a good house, which is basically a nice Extravagant house, verse 12, right? And in verse 13, there's a reference to silver and gold, herds and flocks. And of course, in verse 17 and 18, there's the reference to wealth itself. So indeed, this passage says a lot about money. But in each instance in which it talks about money, not once, not once does it ever say that God wants our money as our offering. It doesn't say that at all. And so the question is, what exactly does this passage say in terms of what God actually wants from us. Well, I want to draw your attention just the first half of verse 11. Read again with me what it says. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God. Turns out that the thing that God wants from us is that we do not forget him. Indeed, throughout this passage, God is constantly imploring his people, remember me, remember me, remember me. So, what we come to find that the thing that God wants us to offer is an offering of remembrance. Let me say that again. The thing that God wants his people to offer to him is an offering of remembrance. And you're thinking, what? An offering of remembrance? What is that? What is an offering of remembrance? And furthermore, how do you do that? How do you like, what does that mean? What is an offering of remembrance, pastor? Well, maybe this illustration can help, a personal embarrassing illustration. 
hope my kids aren't watching. Um, a couple years ago, uh, one of my daughters, Leah, had to get some drugs, not like illegal drugs, but she needed medicine. All right. And so I went to the pharmacy, and my older son, Judah, decided to accompany with me. And so there we are at the back of the store where the pharmacy is located. And the clerk asked, who are you here to pick up for? And I said, sure, I need to pick up medicine for Leah Bay, please. And then without warning, the clerk throws a curveball at me. And he's like, okay, sure. When's her birthday? And I'm like, what? When's your daughter's birthday? I was like, well, what do you need to know her birthday for? Her name is Leah. It's like, oh, I'm sorry, sir, but, you know, we, we categorize our patient's medicine by their birthday, so please tell me what your daughter's birthday is. And I go, um, meanwhile, my son is looking up at me with eyes of horror, wondering if his father actually knows the birthday of his own child, who he happens to be one of. And just when I think I'm about to say August, and he's like, I disappoint him because I have to take out my phone, call my wife. Sarah, when's Leah's birthday again? Right? So I quickly tell the birthday to the clerk, grab the medicine, grab my son's hand. We proceed to go out. And just when we're about to hit the threshold of the store, my son, in a very sheepish, vo sheepish voice, goes, Daddy, yeah, do you know my birthday? <laughs> to which I respond, uh, Judah, you want some M&Ms? Daddy's going to buy you some M&Ms. Okay, just our secret. Shh. Right? Now, what did my son understand based on the question he was asking from the incident that he just witnessed. He understood that remembrance is a form of love, right? When you love someone, you remember them. But conversely, when you don't love someone, you don't remember them, you forget them, okay? You take what I just said and apply it to where I'm going in our, in our passage here. You now understand what God is saying when he says, give me an offering of remembrance, God wants an offering of love, an offering of love, not an offering of fear, not an offering of guilt, not an offering of coercion, not an offering of desperation, not an offering that's quid pro quo, but an offering of love, an offering of love. But of course, that further begs the question, how do you give an offering of love? What does that look like? What does that even mean? Again, we read verse 11, but this time in full, it goes like this. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Here we see, when we forget God, according to this passage, we disobey God. Conversely, when we remember God, we obey him. And sure enough, all throughout the Bible, you see this correlation to where the more you remember God, the more you obey him. Case in point, Numbers chapter 15, starting in verse 37, we read, Then the Lord said to Moses, Give the following instructions to the people of Israel. Throughout the generations to come, you must make tassels for the hem of your clothing and attach them with a blue cord. When you see the tassels, you will remember and therefore obey all the commands of the Lord instead of following your own desires and defiling yourselves as you are prone to do. The tassels will help you remember that you must obey all my commands and be holy to your God. Part of our worship involves giving to the Lord an offering of loving remembrance, which practically means an offering of obedience. That is what God actually wants from us as we give our offerings. He wants us to give to him an offering of obedience. Now, I know some of you are scratching your heads and you're like, okay, so why are we giving money, right? Because usually in the context of our worship, 
Our offerings come in some monetary financial form where it's a, in the form of a check, some cash, some coins, or some electronic transfer from your bank account to the church's bank account. Where do we get from offering of obedience to offering of money? How does that comport? Well, that's a great question, and that leads me to my next point, how God wants us to offer to him. Again, verse 11, but this time down to verse 14. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart will be lifted up, And you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Pause right there. Your attention, please. Here we see a certain effect that money constantly and most often has on people. And you know what that specific effect is? Again, verse 11, not keeping his commandments. According to the Bible, money has the strong potential of interfering and inhibiting a person's ability to obey God, to where the more money you possess, the less obedience you practice. And here's the thing. This is something that has been confirmed and also supported by outside evidence by people who are not even believers. Back in 1991, there was a book that came out entitled The Day America Told the Truth, and it was a very unsettling book for many people, so much so that Oprah, you remember her? She devoted an entire episode on the book. And the reason why the book was so unsettling, why it was so provoking, is because it was simply asking everyday Americans like you, like me, some questions, and therefore recording their honest answers. One specific question that they asked thousands of people across our country was this. What would you be willing to do for $10 million? What would you be willing to do for $10 million? Take a listen to some of the honest responses in order. 25% would abandon their families. 23% would be a prostitute for a week. 16% would leave their spouses. 10% would withhold testimony and let a murderer go free. 7% would murder a complete stranger. 3% would put their children up for adoption. Some of you parents in here are thinking, 10 million, that's, that's pretty generous, right? Just kidding, kids. That's atrocious, right? You read this like, man, back in 91, what in the world was going on back then? Some of you guys weren't even born, right? They can't believe that people would do some of the most atrocious things to other people, including their loved ones. Now, of course, if we have any optimists in here or those of you watching, and you're tempted to think that things are so much better and people would not do these kinds of things as they would back then, Let's fast forward to 2013, just a little over eight years ago, not that far off, right? Harvard University, in partnership with the University of Utah, do a study where they come to find that normal, everyday Americans, similar to, like the book, who have no criminal background, very decent people, they come to find that when you give such people just the promise of money, not give them money, but just the promise of money, nine times out of ten, they're willing to be corrupt and unethical. 
Take a listen to the article that reported on this study. It goes like this. The mere prospect of cash can make unethical behavior much more likely found a study released last month. Researchers from the University of Utah and Harvard wanted to find out exactly what kind of effect the promise of money had on people's behavior. The study found that when people stood to gain financially, they were much more likely to behave unethically than otherwise. This study is just the latest in a series of academic studies that show that money corrupts. One 2012 study by the University of Michigan showed that upper-class individuals behave much more unethically than lower-class individuals when researchers, said, when researchers said showed a more favorable attitude towards greed. The findings show that the mere presence of money can serve as a prompt for immoral behavior operating through a business decision frame, the study notes. These findings suggest that money is a more insidious corrupting factor than previously appreciated as mere subtle exposure to money can be a corrupting influence concludes, end quote. Hmm. According to the Bible and according to top-notch academic institutions, money has the capability of turning what otherwise would be a decent law-abiding citizen into becoming one of the most corrupt, unethical people that rival career criminals. And guess what? That includes you, Christian. Why do you think that when God tells us to give an offering, he says, give it in a monetary or financial form. Why? Could it not be that he's giving us an opportunity to voluntarily relinquish the very thing that usually comes between us and him? I mean, what else could be the alternative? Do you actually think that God wants your money? Do you think that God even needs your money? Christian, here's a newsflash. God doesn't need your money for many reasons. But you know one big reason why he doesn't need your money? Because he already has it. He already has your money. And guess what? He doesn't just have your money. He has everything that you possess, including your loved ones, including your very life. Psalm 24, verse 1. What does it say? The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all of its people belong to him. Everything that you possess, your money, your technology, your gadgets, your children, your spouse, your very life is not yours. And it never was. It all belongs to God. Now, when you understand that, then you begin to understand how God wants us to offer to him. You know how he wants us to offer to him? He wants us to offer to him with the mindset of a receiver, not a giver. Let me say that again. The way God wants us to offer to him, how he wants us to offer to him, is with the mindset of a receiver, not a giver. What do I mean by that? Read again verse 17 and 18. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth. It's very easy to think that you are solely responsible for all that you currently possess because, after all, you acquired it through your power, through your skills, through your competency, through your resourcefulness. And because you think this way, you also believe that you didn't receive anything from anyone. It was all on you. You take the full credit, and because so, you also conclude 
that you and you alone get to decide if you're going to give anything to anyone, including God. But consider what the Apostle Paul has to say about that kind of mindset. This is 2 Corinthians Oh, excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, he writes, For what gives you the right to make such a judgment? What do you have that God hasn't given you? And if everything you have is from God, why boast as though it were not a gift? A gift. What is he saying? He's saying you need to wake up and you need to recognize all that you have, including the things that let you get more of what you have, all come from God. You have received it from him. You are a receiver. Okay? And notice what God describes, how God describes the things that we receive from him. What does he call it? It's a gift. A gift. See? That, my friends, is how you develop the mindset of a receiver, not a giver. It's a mindset that openly acknowledges that all that I have, all that I acquired, all that I quote-unquote earned is truly and solely the product of God first giving to me. I first received it. Therefore, I give not as the original giver. I give as a responsive receiver. Okay? By the way, this is the reason why the Bible tells us that God desires us when we give to others, including to him, not in a spirit of resentment, not in a spirit of reluctance, but in a spirit of cheerfulness. Cheerfulness. For 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7, you must each decide in your heart how much to give and don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure for God loves a person who gives cheerfully. God loves a person who gives cheerfully? How so? Why so? Why does God love it when we give to others and to him with a cheerful spirit? Do you know why? Because our cheerfulness assumes something. You know what it assumes? It assumes that you and I are not ultimately responsible to what we give to people, right? Let me say that again. A cheerful spirit recognizes, it assumes, that I, you, we are not ultimately responsible for what we end up giving to others, providing for others, or caring for others. All of it is given to us by God. And you know why? You know what that means? You know what that means? It means we don't have to be filled with such chronic anxiety, with so much pressure, feeling the whole world is upon our shoulders because we're just so anxious, we're so terrified, we're so uncertain of how we're going to be able to do what we need to do, care for this person in our life, provide for them, give for their needs, robbing us of any cheerfulness. No, we should assume and we should rightly expect that our God will give us all that we need. We will receive all that we need so that we can give to others, even giving back to God. Consider what James Petty Theologian says about all this. He writes, quote, The very God who created seed and supplies it to earthly sowers, farmers, will also supply enough for you to be rich in every way so that you can increase your generosity on every occasion, enlarge the harvest of your righteousness, meet your needs in this life, and expand the perimeter of the good work that is done in his name, end quote. God will give you all that you need, all that you need to receive from him so that you can give to others, provide for others, to care for others. And as a result, you don't have to be annoyed. You don't have to be a Scrooge. 
You don't have to be cranky. You don't have to be fearful and afraid. You don't have to be up late at night over imaginary bills or current bills now. You can have confidence that you are going to receive. And yet, let's be honest. That isn't us, right? Evidenced by the fact that we're not a cheerful bunch. And I don't mean NCF. I just mean Christians in general in America that's haunted by the American dream all the time. We're not cheerful. We're anxious. We're frustrated. We're easily triggered. We're wringing our hands. And we have a hard time having this mindset of a receiver because we think that we are the original giver because we think it's all on us. It's all up to us. Kind of like an orphan without a loving father. And so the question is, how do we develop the kind of mindset that God wants us to have as we give to him? Well, the answer leads me to my final point, why God wants us to offer to him. Let's do a quick recap of what we said so far. We said up till now that God desires for us to give to him an offering of loving remembrance. That basically means an offering of obedience. But we also said that money has the chronic tendency of inhibiting and interfering with that obedience to God. And so God asks us to express our trust in him by giving up the very thing that usually comes between us and him, giving him offerings in monetary form. But then we went on to say that as God calls us to do this, he wants to make sure we have the right mindset, that we have the mindset of a receiver, not a giver, to where we acknowledge that all that we need to give will be given to us because we are a father who will give to his children. And yet so often, we don't have that mindset evidenced by our lack of cheerfulness, not just in giving, but just in general. And so now we're left with the question that we ended the last point. How can we develop a receiver mindset? Now, I ask you to consider what it says in the second half of verse 18. We read, That he, God, may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is in this day. You see that word covenant? It's a very important word. It's a term that you come across many times in the Bible, but just in case you're not familiar with biblical terminology, take a listen to this definition by Pastor Jeremy Treat. I think he gives a great definition of the word covenant. He says this, What is a covenant? If you ever had a DTR to find the relationship conversation, you can understand a bit of what's going on here. If you aren't familiar with a DTR, it's what happens in a relationship when you move from hello to we're a thing. At some point in every relationship that has a hope of lasting, you have to sit down and define the relationship. Are we dating, seeing each other, boyfriend and girlfriend? When God initiates a covenant, he's having a DTR with his people. He's defining the relationship. A covenant is a binding agreement based on vows that creates a new relationship, making those involved as close as family. That's how we use the word when we talk about a marriage, a covenant relationship. And that's how God uses the word with his people. He binds himself by grace to his people. I like that last sentence. He binds himself by grace with his people. God has a covenant with us. He defines the relationship with us through grace. Through grace. Now, what does that mean? It means the gospel. That's what it means. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that says, you and I and every human being chronically, constantly, consistently forget God. And therefore, we live as if there is no God. In other words, we live a disobedient life. And as a result, God has every right to forget us and therefore forsake us to where he should treat us like we would treat 
a broken laptop, a broken camera, a broken TV, okay? Just not hold on to it, not keep it, not save it for any purpose. And yet the gospel tells us that God does the exact opposite. He chooses to remember us and he desires for us to remain with him to where he wants to hold on to us, he wants to keep us, he wants to save us. And the way that God does this is by giving to us his most prized possession, his most invaluable treasure. He gave us the one person who never forgets him and always obeys him. He gave us his one and only begotten son, the second person of the triune Godhead, the eternal son of God. God gave us his prize. He gave us his son. And his son came into this world and became a human being as Jesus Christ. And he suffered the full penalty, suffered the full punishment for all of your sins, for all of my sins, for all of our, un, our, all of our forgettableness of him. To where if you look to Jesus and you recognize that God did all of that because he loves you, you know what's going to happen? You're going to come to the realization that if God is willing to give us his most prized possession, there is nothing he's not willing to give us to where we can't receive from him. That can result in us giving to others, providing for others, caring for others. This is what the Apostle Paul meant when he once wrote these words in Romans 8, starting in verse 31. He says, What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? This, my friends, is how you develop a receiver mindset. It's by remembering this gospel, remembering that this is the extravagant, gracious, gracious, gracious love that your God has for you. And do you know one of the most practical ways in which you can constantly remember this gracious love by consistently, chronically, constantly giving to the Lord in the context of offering. Because think about it. Every time you are giving to the Lord, you're constantly reminding yourself of how you can give to the Lord in the first place. It's because God first gave and still gives to you. He gave to you his greatest treasure of all. He gave you his son. This is why God, this is why God wants us to offer to him. So that you would know the gospel over and over again. To where the more you know this gospel, the more confident you are that you will receive more from your God. And because you grow in that confidence, not only will you keep on giving, but dare I say you will even give more when you are able to give more. Because the more you give, the more you are responding to the great reason to why you're giving it all because of God's extravagant, prodigal love for you in Jesus Christ. This is why we give. This church and every church that truly is worth its salt, we don't want your money. We want you to know the great cost that Christ has paid for you to express the Father's love through him to you. Do you get that? I pray that you do. Let's pray together now. Father, we thank you 
for your grace. Indeed, your grace is truly the greatest possession that we could never earn, that we could never acquire, that we could never merit. And we thank you, O Lord, that we are reminded of this every time we gather to worship, especially at the moment where so many in the church are so reluctant to because of so much abuse that has happened in the church across the world and across the ages. But Father, we pray that this church and all churches that seek to love you and glorify you, that we would remember this message, that we would remember what we are to offer, how we are to offer, and why we are to offer, so that ultimately we can be reminded of the greatest possession that we have received from you, the great love of our Father through the Son, Jesus Christ, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Father, we pray that we would always remember this and that we would faithfully always respond to it by giving our offerings to you because we know we have received so much and continue to receive. Help us to remember these things, for we ask in Jesus' name, amen and amen.